This program is brought to you by Emory University. I'm going to start off by talking about uh, work, uh, about the neural constraints of learning. And depending on how far we get, uh, I might also uh, talk about internal models for sensory motor control. And so the common theme across these studies is that we're recording from lots of neurons at the same time while an animal is doing some task. And we want to try to understand uh, that neural activity and learn something uh, about uh, the brain structures that are involved in those behaviors. Okay, so I'm going to start off with the first one. So this work was done by graduate student Patrick Sadler, uh, who was co-advised by Professor Aaron Batista and me. And so the question we're going to consider here is about learning. So consider when you're learning to play tennis, or when you're learning to manipulate a Rubik's Cube, or when you're learning to ride a bike, something changes in your brain between when you're a novice and when you're an expert. Okay, what is it that changes? Okay. So one thing that you notice when you look across uh, different learning studies is that some tasks are easier to learn than others. Okay? And we wondered why. Okay, one possibility might be that new tasks or new behaviors require your brain to produce new neural activity patterns. Right? So could it be that the reason why some tasks are easier to perform than others is because some types of neural activity patterns are easier to produce than others? Okay. And we can go even farther by asking whether you can, the brain can produce arbitrary patterns of activity <coughs> through learning. Okay. And if not, what defines constraints on what the animal is able to learn uh, rapidly versus not able to learn rapidly? Right. So what is the key? So what is, uh, to ask this key question, we need a framework for quantifying uh, the neural activity that we record. So we're going to record from many neurons simultaneously. Okay? And just for the sake of illustration, I'm just going to show three neurons being recorded from the brain. Okay, so these are uh, the spike trains of three different neurons over time. Okay? And what I'm plotting on each of these axes is the firing rate of one of these neurons. So if we're recording from 100 neurons, we're, we'd be in a 100-dimensional space. So in one particular time window, we can count the number of spikes that each neuron gave off. Okay? And then we can divide by the duration of the time window. That gives us a firing rate. And that is a point in this space. Okay? And now we can move this time window along. So we have non-overlapping time windows. And what we get are many different points in this space. So what we find and what uh, other people find in a number of different brain areas and a number of different tasks is that the neural activity doesn't equally populate all parts of this population firing rate space. Okay? But rather, the neural activity tends to lie more in some parts of the space than others. <coughs> and so this is where dimensionality reduction comes in. Right? We want to identify uh, the parts of this high-dimensional space in which the neural activity tend to live in. Okay. And so we can identify these axes okay, that describe a lot of covariance okay, in the population activity. And we're going to call an axis like this a co-modulation pattern, okay, whereby uh, neural activity that moves along this axis describes a characteristic uh, correlation pattern, right, and how uh, different neurons change the activity up and down together. So we, we, we mentioned a moment ago, right, that learning a new, to perform a new task likely requires the brain to show new neural activity patterns. Okay. And so what we're going to do is to ask a fundamental question, which is what co-modulation patterns is the brain able to learn to produce. 
So for, to be concrete with this, let's say that we observe that the brain naturally produces this co-modulation pattern. Okay. Then can the brain learn to also reliably produce this co-modulation pattern? So in order to ask this question in an experiment, we need a way of directly requesting neural activity patterns. Okay. So in order to do this, uh, we're going to use a brain-computer interface. Okay. And most people know about brain-computer interfaces for their rehabilitation benefits. Right? So a lot of people work on brain-computer interfaces to allow paralyzed uh, patients to move a robotic limb or a computer cursor. Okay. And we're interested in that too. But what I'll be talking about today is not that, okay? but rather the use of a brain-computer interface as an experimental paradigm to ask scientific questions. Okay? And as a side comment, I think uh, the potential of brain-computer interfaces for basic science purposes in the long run might be even larger than its rehabilitation purposes. Okay? But we'll see how that plays out. Okay. So what is a brain-computer interface exactly? So in our setup, what we have is uh, a monkey. We're recording the neural activity from its motor cortex. We have a bunch of electrodes that are recording spikes over time. Okay? And each of these tick marks corresponds to a spike. We pass this neural activity into uh, a so-called BCI mapping, okay? which uh, translates this neural activity into movement of a computer cursor. And you can think about this as nothing more than a matrix operation. Okay? So we have, let's say we have 100 electrodes, okay? and we have two-dimensional position. Then this could be uh, an 100 by two, a two by 100 matrix. Okay? And the task of the monkey is to use its neural activity to control this blue cursor to acquire these instructed targets. Okay? And if it does so uh, successfully, then it gets a drop of juice. And the animal does this uh, with visual feedback. So at every moment in time, it can see where uh, the cursor it's controlling is relative to the target and try to move the cursor to the target. Yep? Sorry, I missed. Is, is the mapping to the cursor's position or velocity? Uh, it's to velocity here, yes. Thank you. Yes. Huh? Each part of the cortex is a specific which part of the motor cortex. Yeah, so it's primary motor cortex in the shoulder region. Okay. All right. So we're going to be studying learning okay, using this brain-computer interface. Okay? And what do we know from previous studies about uh, learning using a brain-computer interface. Okay, so uh, different uh, BCI mappings require the brain to show different co-modulation patterns. Right? So the really neat thing about this experimental setup is that we as experimenters get to define what the mapping is, and we can change it on the fly during the, an experiment. Okay, and so. Uh, for any particular mapping, it's going to require the animal to show particular patterns of neural activity in order for the animal to be able to control uh, the cursor well. Okay? And so different BCI mappings are going to require different uh, neural activity patterns for task success. Okay. And from previous studies, we know that learning a new BCI mapping takes time. Okay. And this comes from uh, early studies by Ed Fetz, uh, then uh, later Andy Schwartz, Steve Chase, when he was a postdoc in Andy's lab, now a PI at CMU, and uh, Jose Carmina and others. Okay. And so what you see is when you give the animal a new mapping, you might initially perform very poorly with it, but if you give it time to practice, then it can get better and better at it. 
And what you see from this previous literature is that some BCI mappings are learned more readily than others. Okay? Some of them, the animal learns very rapidly, some of them, it takes a long time, or maybe some of them, the animal never learns. Okay. And so this is one of the uh, lines of study that uh, motivated us to do this work, which was to ask why. Is this something about the brain constraining uh, the animal from learning all of them very rapidly? Okay? And maybe principles that we learn here could generalize to learning other tasks. Okay. So the key question we're going to ask here is, is there a network principle? When I say network, I mean network of neurons, right? network principle that explains this difference in learnability between different BCI mappings. Yep? So it seems that you're not asking anything about the dynamics or the evolution in time of yep. the mapping. Yep. I mean, of the co-modulation. Correct. Yeah. So in this study, it's all about the direction of co-modulation in this populate firing rate space. Um, we're doing follow-up experiments now where we're asking about the time course, but that's not part of this. And is everything always positive correlation, positive co-modulation? No, not necessarily. Yeah, we don't constrain that. All right. So to try to address this question, I'm going to outline our approach, okay, which involves both experimental and computational components. Okay. So for illustrative purposes here, I'm going to show a one-dimensional brain-computer interface where there are just two targets that the animal has to acquire, whereas in the actual experiment that we did, there were actually eight targets around the ring. Okay? And the reason why I'm showing you just this one-dimensional BCI is because it makes the rest of the illustration uh, clearer. Okay. All right. So what he's doing, the animal, is to control, to try to move this purple cursor to hit whatever target is presented. Okay. So the first step, okay, there should be a one here. Okay, there will be a number. Okay. So the first step is for us to identify the region of this population firing rate space in which the neural activity naturally lives. Okay. So ideally, what we would like is to have the animal running around in the wild for a year and us recording neural activity and seeing where the neural activity goes. Okay. Unfortunately, that's not feasible in, an in a laboratory setting. Okay. So what we did instead was to have the animal watch cursor movements passively. Okay, and it turns out that previous studies have shown that if you're recording in the motor cortex and you have an animal just passively watch cursor movements, you see activity patterns in motor cortex that reflect where the cursor is going. Okay, and we saw the same thing. And so what we did was we leveraged this property to figure out where the neural activity naturally lives in this space. So for example, if the animal is watching the cursor move to the left, okay, so here we are moving the cursor. The animal is not, right? It's just passively watching. What we observe is that the neural activity tends to say lie here in this space. Okay, so this part of the space corresponds to the cursor moving to the left. Alright? Then we move the cursor to the right. And then we saw the neural activity lie in this part of the space. Okay. And we did this for all eight targets around the circle. And what this uh, provided us with was a low dimensional space. Okay, this is dimensionality reduction, right? Within the high dimensional firing rate space in which the neural activity naturally lived. Okay, and we call this the intrinsic manifold. Okay. I'm just going to rotate it around. Okay, so in this illustration, we have just three neurons and a two-dimensional intrinsic manifold. Okay, whereas in the actual experiments, we had 90 electrodes instead of three. Okay, and our intrinsic manifold was 10-dimensional instead of two. Okay, and we chose 10 because we did uh, cross-validation on the data to identify uh, how many dimensions are needed. 
how many dimensions there are in the data that are uh, generalizable to held out data, and we came out with on average 10. So that's why we use 10 in these experiments. Okay. And so what what does this manifold mean? Okay. Just that. So we think that this manifold reflects constraints in the underlying neural circuitry. Right? So we're recording from a bunch of neurons, okay, sparsely from some underlying network. Okay? And because the neurons are all part of this network, these neurons can't act independently from the other neurons. And so the fact that they're part of this network imposes some constraints on what activity they can show. And so we think that perhaps the, the intrinsic manifold that we identify here is a reflection of these underlying network constraints. Okay? And it's in fact, that sort of line of thinking uh, that uh, motivates our hypothesis, which I'll talk about next. Yeah, please, right. uh, I just have a few more detailed questions about the neurons that you're recording from. First of all, how, how far apart are your 90 electrodes? And then do you know if you record from excitatory or inhibitory or both? Right, right. So uh, I'll get to that in just a moment, but I'll just give you a quick answer now. So we used a Utah array. So the separation between electrodes <coughs> is 400 microns. And we do not know whether the, what we're recording from are excitatory inhibitory neurons. Yeah. Just the, the responses that you see when the monkey's just watching passively. Yeah. Does the monkey have to have had any experience with this paradigm? Yeah, this is a great question. We haven't studied that systematically. I would guess yes. Um, so these monkeys that we use, they have done either arm reaching tasks or BCI control for weeks and months before this. And so it could be that while they're watching the cursor, they think that they're actually moving the cursor or they, you know, something like that. So I, I think possibly yes, but we haven't studied that. So it might not work as a clean monkey. <laughs> right, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the key uh, aspect of that that's important for this experiment is that we want the animal to be trying to move in different directions. And so if it were the case that it, it thinks it's actually moving the cursor while it's actually not, that's just fine for us. In fact, that's good. Okay. All right. So having identified this intrinsic manifold <coughs> where the neural activity naturally lives, okay, we moved on to the second step of the procedure, which was to build a BCI mapping that the animal can use very easily. Okay. And so what we did was the simplest thing possible was the following, which was the following. So we observed that when uh, the cursor moved to the left, right, the neural activity tended to lie here. When the cursor moved to the right, the neural activity tended to lie here. So what we're going to do is to then say, if now, in the future, the animal shows any neural activity patterns here, we're going to move the cursor left. Okay? And if we see the animal produce any neural activity patterns here, we're going to move the cursor to the right. Okay? That's the mapping we're going to start off with. Okay? And that should be easy for him to control. Okay? So to illustrate, right? so we map any neural activity patterns here, the cursor movements to the right, and map any neural activity patterns here to cursor movements to the left. Yep. So are, the, are those patterns normalized to, to, to a mean rate? Or since you're controlling speed, is then the intensity of the pattern an absolute rate, another control right. rate? So it has to be, yeah. So it has to be matched between uh, when we defined, when we calibrated the mapping, and when the animal's actually using it. So yes, it has to be matched. So you don't normalize on a moment-to-moment -moment basis? No. Just relative rates. Right. It's yes. absolute rates. Yes. <laughs> okay. So now the third step is the key experimental manipulation. Okay? And this is a really uh, 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 useful aspect of a brain computer interface, which is now we can switch the mapping on the animal, okay, unbeknownst to the animal. And so we're going to switch this BCI mapping 
in two different ways, both of which are difficult for the animal to control initially after the switch. Okay. One way is that we're going to switch this mapping such that it remains consistent with, it, with the intrinsic manifold. Okay. And we're going to call this a within manifold perturbation. Okay. The second way is that we're going to switch the DCI mapping so that it becomes inconsistent with the intrinsic manifold. And we're going to call this an outside manifold perturbation. Okay. And so just to illustrate, okay, so let's say we started off with this mapping right, that was easy for the animal to control. Okay. And now during the experiment, we're going to switch this mapping to say there and ask whether the animal can learn to use this new mapping. So now, in order for the animal to use this mapping well, it needs to reliably <laughs> modulate its neural activity along this axis. And we're going to ask, can the subject learn to do it? Okay. So uh, for a within-manifold perturbation, we have a picture something like this, right, where the yellow is the manifold here, right, the blue is what we call the intuitive mapping, the one that's easy to control from the outset. And then the red is uh, this within manifold perturbation. And you notice that the red mapping remains within the manifold. Okay, And we're going to predict that this is easier for the animal to learn. Okay. And then the second type of perturbation is this one, where we change blue to black. Right? And this new black mapping is one that lies outside of the intrinsic manifold. Okay? So now for the animal to learn to control this mapping, the animal has to show neural activity patterns reliably along this black axis, out of the manifold. Okay? And we're going to predict that this is going to be harder to learn. Okay? So before someone raises their hands and says, isn't this obvious? Why are, why are you even testing this? Right? Didn't we know this before we started? Okay. So I'm going to put uh, two pieces of information on the table. Okay. So the first is that both types of perturbation are difficult for the animal to use initially. Okay. So it's not the case that this type of perturbation is initially easy and this type of perturbation was initially difficult. Right? In fact, this was one of the key controls of the experiment, which is to make sure that we're making apples-to-apples apples comparison here. Okay? And one of the key controls is that the initial difficulty, right after we switched the mapping, was matched between this case and this case. Okay. And then the second thing to put on the table is that uh, a number of previous studies with BCIs have suggested that many BCI mappings, and perhaps any BCI mapping, might be learnable. Okay? So this goes back to uh, the pioneering studies of Ed Fetz in the late 60s and, the and early 70s, okay, where he operantly conditioned the activity of individual neurons to go up and down. So he would tell the animal to move the firing rate of a particular neuron up, and he could train it to do so, and down. He also did it for pairs of neurons and got them to go up and down together and to anti-vary. Okay. And then uh, more recently, uh, uh, Annie Schwartz's group uh, and uh, also a uh, study after that with Rob Cass and Steve Chase and uh, also uh, Jose Carmina's group, okay, where what they did was they gave the animal a random mapping and showed that the animal could learn to control that very well. These studies together tend to suggest that perhaps animals can learn any mapping. Okay. It's the idea where you give the brain something, even though it doesn't make sense to the brain at the beginning, the brain will just learn. Okay. Okay. All right. So the reason why I'm describing these studies is to, to say that before we did this study, it wasn't obviously the case that one type of perturbation was going to be harder than the other. 
All right. And then the last step here is to measure the subject's ability to learn each type of perturbed mapping. Okay. So the central hypothesis in this study is that within manifold perturbations are easier to learn than out of manifold perturbations. All right. So what do we find? So here are uh, some experimental details. So as I mentioned, uh, we perform Utah ray recordings in the primary motor cortex. Uh, we typically recorded 90 channels of neural activity simultaneously on any given day. Uh, we used threshold crossings on each electrode, so there's no spike sorting here. Uh, we took spike counts in non-overlapping 45 millisecond DINs, and then we mapped this 90-dimensional neural activity down to two-dimensional cursor velocity. And we used an eight-target center-out task rather than the two-target task that I showed in the illustration. Okay. So I'm going to show you a video uh, of the animal uh, during the intuitive mapping where he's controlling it well. Okay. So he's controlling this blue cursor to hit the green target. So we typically saw uh, uh, success rates of nearly 100% and movement times of around one second. Okay. And the reason why I'm showing you this video is to say that he was able to control the cursor very well. Okay. And this is a prerequisite for doing a learning study like this. Because if he can't control the cursor well from the outset, then we have no business studying learning. Right? He, he's not, his behavior is not controlled. Okay, but in this case, it is very well controlled from the beginning. All right. So then how did we perturb, how do we uh, perform these two different types of perturbed mappings? Okay. So a BCI mapping, as I mentioned, uh, translates neural activity to cursor velocity. Okay. And the state of the art, or the typical thing that's done in the field, is to use a common filter. Okay, to go from neural activity to cursor velocity. Okay, so the key uh, difference in what we did in this study uh, was to introduce uh, factor analysis okay, as a pre-processing on the neural activity before we fed it into the common filter. Okay, and the reason why we did this was to allow us to dissociate between these two different types of perturbations. So what we did first was we applied factor analysis to uh, the neural activity to obtain a smaller number of factors okay, that summarize the co-modulation uh, across the population of neurons. Okay? And each of these uh, layer <coughs> variables represents an axis of the intrinsic manifold. Okay? So you can think about this as taking the raw neural activity, which is 90-dimensional, okay, and extracting uh, an intrinsic manifold, right, the major axes of this intrinsic manifold. Okay? And then these variables that define the intrinsic manifold, we fed into the Kalman filter to get out a cursor velocity. Okay. So uh, in the experiments, this was 90-dimensional, this was 10-dimensional, and this is this was two-dimensional. Right. Whereas in the illustrations that I showed, instead of 90, 10, 2, it was 3, 2, 1. Okay. Okay. All right. So how do we do these perturbations? Okay. So for the out-of-manifold perturbation, what we did was we took this 90-dimensional vector, okay, and then we scrambled the order of the elements. Okay, before we fed it into factor analysis. Okay. And this is an out-of-manifold perturbation because now for the animal to be able to use this mapping, right, it now needs to uh, show new or it, it needs to uh, use a different identity on these neurons right, to show those same patterns of activity. Right? So two neurons which used to vary up and down together, might now need to anti-vary. Right? 
Whereas for the within manifold perturbation, okay, what we did was we took this vector of 10 factors and we scrambled their elements, okay, the ordering of the elements. Okay? And so there, what we did was to preserve uh, the natural co-modulation patterns across the population of neurons, okay? but just switched uh, the association between each factor and cursor movements. Okay. So here is uh, two representative sessions okay, when we did this experiment. Okay, so first let me show you a representative session for uh, the within manifold perturbations. Okay, so what I'm going to show you here is a success rate versus time or trial number okay, within one session. And here is uh, the acquisition time, right, the time from the center to the target okay, on the vertical axis. And again, uh, trial number uh, on the horizontal axis. Okay? So at the beginning, we gave him this intuitive mapping, which he could, he could control very well. Okay? And so what we see here is that we see uh, approximately 100% success rate and around one second acquired time. Okay? Now we introduce this, we, we change the mapping on the animal, and then performance went down. Okay? And this is shown here. So right after we introduced this perturbation, the success rate went down from 100% to around 40%. But then as the animal uh, started using this perturbed mapping, it got better with it and got back up to nearly 100%. Okay? And we can also look at the acquisition time. So right after we introduced the mapping, the performance got worse. So it took the animal longer to get to the target. And then over time, as it got better using it, uh, the acquisition time went down, but it never got back to its original level. Okay. And then after a few hundred trials of that, we then presented the original mapping again, the easy one, the intuitive one. And what we see is that performance uh, initially uh, goes down because we never because we changed the mapping uh, unannounced to the animal, and then quickly it comes back up, and then uh, acquire time goes back down. Okay, so this is a typical session for a within-manifold perturbation. Yep? I don't know if you this, or what would you predict if you were to do a within-manifold perturbation and just completely you know, flip the axis, or does that not make sense if you're using multiple directions? Which axis? Oh, you see how you pretty much did like a 90 degree turn? Yeah. Um, what if you did like a 180 degree? Yeah, yeah, you could do that too. Yeah, we didn't actually try that. Okay. But um, yeah, I, I suspect that that's going to be easier for the animal to learn than what we did. Because our perturbations were within a 10D space. Right? Whereas if you like flip the workspace or you rotate the workspace, um, yeah, I think that's going to be easier for the animal to pick up. It, it, in that case, it might come back down to like the thousand, for example, yeah. right? Yeah. Because there might be even within your within a manifold, there might be still an easier learn yes. thing, right? Yes. There's a there's a privilege to some yes. dimension yes. within manifold. Yes. Is that yes. according to this? Yes. Is that true? Possibly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 We're actually uh, uh, doing some post hoc analyses now to ask whether that what you're saying is true. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so we're looking at that now, and what we're finding is that you can see lots of learning in low variance factors. 
as much as on high variance factors, it looks like? Yeah. And so it seems like the critical thing that it depends on is uh, in the perturbed mapping, how much is that factor needed? So let's say that a factor showed low variance to begin with, but it's really needed um, in the perturbed mapping. Then we'll tend to see lots of learning in that factor. At the same rate as if it were a... Yeah, we're still looking into that. I don't know. That, yeah, we should, we should look at that. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like they're identifying the, the factors that are most critical sort of in order of how much they contribute. Yes, with the current mapping. Yeah. 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 I guess to, stay tuned. We're still looking at that. Yeah. Okay. And we can also look at uh, a representative session for an outside manifold perturbation. Okay. So here what you see is that uh, after the perturbation, okay, the performance goes down, but then it doesn't tend to recover and stay up, right, at 100%, okay, but rather it stays low, okay, and then when we give the animal the easy mapping again, then performance get, comes back up to 100%, okay, and then similarly for the acquisition time, we see that after we introduce the perturbation, that performance gets worse, doesn't get better, right, and then after we introduce the uh, easy mapping again, then the acquisition time comes back down. So the critical thing about this plot is that with, for the within-manifold perturbations, we tend to see substantial learning, whereas for the outside-manifold perturbations, we don't see a lot of learning. Okay. So how do we quantify the amount of learning? Okay, so we wanted to summarize so we had lots of sessions for each of these, right? These are just two representative sessions. And we wanted to summarize the amount of learning on each session with just a single number. That would make it easier for us to compare across many sessions. Okay, so what we did was the following. Yep? So, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it seems the success rate goes down less in out-of-manifold perturbation yeah. initially. Yeah. Yeah, so this is uh, just, these two are, are just example sessions. Okay. And in fact, what you're pointing out is a critical control in this experiment, which is that the initial difficulties right after the perturbation have to be matched across these two different types of perturbations. And so if you look across all the sessions for this type of perturbation and look at the distribution <laughs> of initial hits, right, versus the distribution of initial hits here, they are matched. Right here? Yeah, I don't know how typical it is. I think perhaps one effect might be uh, the animal gets frustrated and then sometimes it loses interest. Um, but yeah, we haven't uh, quantified that systematically. Yeah. There were a good number of these outside manifold perturbations where the animal did a few trials at the beginning and it thought it was so hard that it just decided to stop working for the day. Whereas that never happens for this. Yeah. So at 3,000 milliseconds acquisition time, is this a random walk when, this, when the success happens, or is it still a targeted movement? Mm -hmm. Like right here? Yeah, yeah. So, so are those successes actual successes, or are they just the result yeah. of random, yeah. right. random walks? Right, so most of these are uh, are actual correct, I mean, all of these are successful trials, right? Uh, right, here. but if you randomly move right. across the space, you will hit that target at some point. Right, so uh, just for me, like, so we didn't quantify that, but when I sat in the rig and I watched these experiments, it looked like what was happening was that the animal ha was trying to control the cursor the whole time, but that the cursor would take these, like, big loops, yeah? And sometimes, instead of going straight from the center to the target, it would take the circuitous trajectory and then come back to the target. And would do that on the next trial too, right? So that would seem to suggest to me that it's something systematic, that it wasn't just a random walk on the screen. Yeah. Did the animals ever get the same mapping, whether within or out of manifold, in successive sessions, either on successive days? Yeah, we're doing that experiment right now. 
So um, the question that we're asking right now, which I'm not going to show today, the results today, is that what we found over many sessions is that uh, there was relatively little learning in the out-of-manifold out perturbations. But if we gave the animal not just one day to learn it, but a week or two weeks, can the animal uh, show more learning? And the answer is yes. But there are also nuances there, too. Yeah? I'm sorry if you said this, but um, what, what defines a failure? Is it if it's a different trial or is it Right. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mention it. Thanks for asking. Okay. So it's if seven and a half seconds have passed, and the cursor has not touched the target yet. Yep? Does it have to just pass the target, or does it have to hold the target? It just needs to touch the target. So it could randomly pass the target. It could, yeah. Yep? So I'm trying to put this together with the older work. Do you think that if you only used a very few cells, that it would be easier for the animal? Yeah. Um, In yeah, other I think words, it, you would have a three-dimensional space and you would do the yeah. same kind of perturbation, but yeah, yeah, you think it would be easier for the animal? Yeah, so I think it could be the case. I so I don't know where that curve asymptotes out. So we see sort of the ends of it, right? So we're using lots of cells, <coughs> and then uh, like pioneering studies of FETs and others did it with one or two cells. And they were able to do that reliably for many, many different cells. Uh, and anecdotally, uh, Fetz has tried it with three cells. And he said it was so hard, he gave up. Um, there's also uh, a study from uh, Mark Schieber's lab uh, from about five years ago, I think. And there, they tried uh, up to four cells. And they were able to get um, some learning for three and four. I, I forget the exact details of what they found, but um, we should look more carefully at the results of their study. But with your setup, you could easily fill in that gap between very few and 90, right? Yeah. Just ignore So how do we quantify the performance? So for each session, we want to summarize it with one number. Okay. So the two metrics that you saw on the previous slide, they were success rate and acquisition time. Okay. So uh, the vertical axis here is going to be the change in acquisition time between the intuitive period and the perturbed period. So zero means that his acquisition time is as good during the perturbation as he was during the intuitive, okay? Where our success rate here is an absolute scale, okay? And the positive values here means that he's worse during the perturbation period than he was during the, with the intuitive mapping, okay? So any movement here to the lower right, right? Meaning increased success rate and lower acquisition time is better performance, okay? So now take the example session that I just showed, okay? And we plot a point here corresponding to his performance right after the perturbation. So in this case, success rate was this amount, uh, acquisition time was this amount, that gave us a point in this space, okay? And then we did the same <coughs> at the end of the perturbation, at the end of the perturbation period, Right? And that led to this point, where it's a near 100% success rate and lower acquisition time. Okay? And then in contrast, for this outside manifold perturbation, we get this little dinky vector here. Okay? All right. And so to s we then put a star here for perfect performance, okay? what we call perfect performance, which is 100% success rate and uh, an acquire time that was the same as during the intuitive mapping, okay? And then we drew a vector from the starting point directly to the perfect performance, okay? And asked how far along this vector did the animal get, okay? Between where it started and perfect performance. So what we did was we projected each of the, what we call learning vectors, 
right, onto that line. Okay, and that okay, gave us. And then we can compute the percentage of the way that the animal got. <coughs> okay? So in the red case, this would be something like 70%. In the black case, this would be something like 10%. Okay? And that would be a metric, one value right, for each session that quantified how far along the, this learning line did he get. Yeah? Do you worry a little bit this might bias against because if you're already, if your success rate is already pretty close to 100, it's going to be really hard to make it all the way down there. Right. Because right. You're, it's very rare, few of these things are going to be 100% success rates. Right. So this is why it was important for us to match the initial difficulty of the chaos of perturbation. How did you do the matching? What, what did you twiddle? Yeah. So what we did was we, um, so there are many different ways in which we can randomly perturb these vectors, right? Either the 90-dimensional neural activity or the 10-dimensional uh, factors. So uh, what we did was we enumerated millions and millions of possible perturbations. And then based on the neural activity that we observed earlier that same day, we predicted what the animal's initial performance would be with a perturbed mapping for each one of millions and millions of possible perturbations. And so for each one, we assign a number as to how well we predicted the animal would do with that. And then we selected, and then we, we set a range. Okay? So we didn't want uh, the perturbed mapping to be too easy or too hard. If it was too easy, then this would come to uh, uh, Gordon's concern that there's nothing to learn. If it's too hard, the animal will just give up. So we want something of intermediate difficulty. And so uh, then among those with intermediate difficulty, we select it randomly. Okay. All right. So now using this metric, we can now plot a histogram okay, across all sessions for each of the two types of perturbations. Okay. So actually, I'm showing all of these vectors here across all the sessions, but it's a little hard to see right, in this format. That's why we're going to plot the histogram. Okay. So here, on this horizontal axis, we have this metric that we just discussed on the previous slide. So zero is no learning. This means the vector has no length. Ends up where it started. One is full learning. It means it got to the start. Okay. Negative means it got worse. And then the vertical axis here is the number of sessions. Okay. So for the within-manifold perturbations, we got a histogram that looks like this. right? So you got a lot of sessions with, with good learning. For the outside-manifold perturbations, we got this distribution. And they were uh, substantially different from each other. Okay. And we saw this effect across two animals. Okay. And so what this plot shows us is that we get more learning for within-manifold perturbations than we do for outside-manifold perturbations. And so if we come back to our original hypothesis, right? so that data would support this hypothesis, that within-manifold perturbations are easier to learn than out-of-manifold perturbations. So there are several critical controls that I've alluded to, but I haven't had a chance to talk about in detail. And so I'm just going to tell you about the control, tell you what the controls were here. If you want to know more details about them, feel free to ask about them uh, later. Okay. So, the, so we needed to ensure that the two types of perturbations uh, uh, were equalized. Right? We want to make sure we're making <coughs> apples and apples comparison. So one of the things that we had to ensure was that the initial behavioral hit was the same across the two types of perturbations. Okay? This is something we've already talked about. Right? We want to make sure that the initial difficulties after the perturbation are matched across the two types of, uh, two types of perturbations. Okay? Secondly, uh, we ensured that the change in the angle okay, between the intuitive mapping and the perturbed mapping was matched 
across the two types of perturbations. Okay? And then the third thing is that we ensured that the required change in preferred directions, right? So this is an individual neuron metric, that the required change in preferred directions for the two types of mappings were matched. Uh, two types of perturbations were matched. <coughs> yep. Sorry, just to get back to this metric again, one more. So, wouldn't you also, in a lot of cases, be able, especially particularly for things, for a lot of them, because you're going along this axis, remember, so the, the x-axis was percent correct, yep. and the y-axis was acquisition time? Yep. So, could you just do something really fast and really wrong, and you're still going to learn a lot according to this metric? Because you're still your project, you go down your projection on that line. Right. still could be. <coughs> yeah, that could happen, but in, we but didn't actually see that. that. Yeah. Okay. So if you look, so when I plug in like all the sessions, that's true. Yeah, all you don't see anyone that goes right. this way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever recalculate the um, plane? Um, I forget what you called it. Uh, the intrinsic manifold. The yeah. manifold. Thank you. <coughs> after um, after some training, mm -hmm. to see whether or not to see it, it change. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And we tried very hard to do so. Uh, but it turns out that it's hard to see uh, a change. Um, so, uh, we, okay, so we first started off with the real data and tried to uh, estimate intrinsic manifold at the end of learning and compared it to the beginning of learning. And we did not see a significant difference. And then we asked ourselves uh, whether we could actually see this in simulation where we can vary the amount of actual change for realistic amounts of noise that we, that we have in the data. And through our simulation, we found that uh, we would have to get very big changes within the intrinsic manifold to be able to actually detect it through the noise that we have uh, in this neural activity. And so for now, we haven't been able to detect a change. But um, we're doing experiments. So that actually is consistent right, with the results here which is that the neural activity cannot violate the intrinsic manifold within a period of a couple of hours during <laughs> each of these experiments. Uh, we're now doing experiments where we're having the animal learn these outside manifold perturbations across multiple days. And there are many cases where the animal can learn these outside manifold perturbations over the course of a week. And then there, we're going to ask the same question. And we haven't done that yet, but we're going to see there if we see a difference. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Have you tried um, like recording on the brain regions, uh, other motor areas to see if you see that effect or don't see that? Yeah, effect? we haven't done it. We would love to do that, or someone else to do it. That would be that would be great. Yeah. Yeah. I I would suspect that principles like this would generalize to other brain areas. Um, but we would have to see. Um, so, so our central hypothesis is that the reason why we see this effect is due to underlying network constraints. Right? And presumably, we have underlying network constraints in any brain area. Yeah? So I was going to ask, is that interpretation that it's local to motor cortex? And that's the constraint on this multidimensional space. Because if you would ask me, come to this silver thing that's sitting in front of you and make the cursor move on the screen, the space of all possible things that I might do might start with touching your screen. Mm -hmm. And that that is actually the wrong way to do it. It's yep. to touch this thing that's not connected mm -hmm. to the screen. Mm -hmm. right. And therefore, and if it is touching the screen, touching the screen here to make the cursor be here mm -hmm. is as easy as touching the screen mm -hmm. to make the cursor mm -hmm. here. Yeah, we worried about, yeah, go ahead. And so that, that I think that's one of the main reasons why you wanted to make the initial behavior hit be the same, so that it's not some sort of problem with an epiphany or something right. like that. Yeah. But then I wonder if you would ask for kind of meta-learning, do you'd have to have more than two monkeys. So this is perhaps a thought experiment now. But over time, do some monkeys who learn out-of-manifold um, out changes, do they get better, faster, Right. Brand new, do they learn in a way that seems that it's more, more global than local about synaptic weight changes just in, in one? Right, yeah. So we, 
looked at the data and asked whether uh, there was meta-learning, whether the amount of learning tended to increase over the course of the many weeks that we did these experiments, and we did not see an effect there. But it would take, it would take what you're doing now, actually having it be successful, as successful learning out of manifolds with multiple day and mm -hmm. I see, yeah, we haven't done that yet. Yeah, yeah, so with the experiments that we're doing now, we can start to ask those questions. Mm -hmm. Actually, next, Delia. Okay. okay. So, so what I find actually fascinating here, right, is that, that it's this ten-dimensional manifold, right, which, which makes sense, uh, not the number ten, but, but the, the number is small, right? It makes sense in the sense that uh, you cannot explore everything, right? You have to limit yourself to a set of things that you are actually going to be exploring, right? Yeah. So, but what I'd like to know is. Um, uh, is this number 10, uh, are all of these uh, different dimensions equally interesting and that's something you know, equally explorable? Does the animal explore one dimension first and then goes into the second dimension, third, right? Or even a simpler question, if one were to try to, to, to reanalyze it in terms just by getting the animal's uh, response, but just again the statistics of natural responses, if I were to look at uh, recording from 20 neurons, how many dimensions would I get? If I record from 40, how many direct dimensions do I get? What, how, how does the number of learnable dimensions or natural manifold scale with the size of the of, of the recording, right? What is the and maybe extrapolated to 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 a billion neurons and, and then understand what is the space from from which the animal can actually which the animal can actually learn, right? What is the total space that the animal can learn, right? Right. And this right. So there are three there are three important effects here. So one's number of neurons, another one's number of trials. And number one, uh, a third is um, uh, the task. Yeah. yeah. Just for this task. Right. Just for this one task, and keeping the number of recordings the same, just looking at how the number of effective dimension scales with the number of neurons, and trying to extrapolate. Is it 10? Is yeah. it going to all stay 10? Or is, it, yeah. is there an evidence that it might increase to 100? Yeah. Dimension, yeah. Right? So we've actually been uh, doing a systematic study of this, not with these data, but with um, data in visual cortex, and also with uh, 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 spiking network models, where the advantage of spiking network models is there, we can go beyond 100 neurons. We can go to 5,000, right? And we can have as many trials as we want. And so we can assess the scaling trends of dimensionality with yeah, number of neurons. This all depends on whether the networks are right or wrong, which most likely they're wrong, right? I mean, we don't have models, right? <laughs> right, right, right. So this is why we also did it with the data, right? As comparison, side by side, right? And so what we saw in those data, not with these data, but in visual cortex, is that um, the dimensionality tends to increase with uh, the number of neurons, yeah? And uh, for the number of neurons that we had in those, data, in those data sets, which was up to 80, we did not see a plateauing. Yeah. But, yeah. but it's a very interesting question, and we could ask the same about this, and we should. Yeah. <laughs> what if you had four targets as opposed to eight? Yeah. Eight targets, ten dimensions? Yeah, there would be fewer. Yeah. So it's not necessarily, it, when you say intrinsic, mm -hmm. if it really depends on the number of targets right. and you know, how intrinsic. Right, so if you have a more complicated task, presumably the, the it's dimensions that we identify are going to be a subset right, of the larger space. Well, I guess what I'm saying is that it, I'm not so sure 10 is very privileged. It, it varies with the complexity of the task. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I don't think that the number 10 is any magical number. I think what's important here is that we're identifying um, the dominant <clears throat> modes of covariability in the population activity. Right? And if we ch had chosen 12 or 8 for this experiment, I think we would have gotten similar results. I think what's important is that we, we use the top, you know, we use the top X number of factors. Yeah. So, so this is a moderation comment. Uh, we're nearing the end of the time. Yeah, this yeah, says yeah, controls, yeah. not conclusions. I want to make sure that you get through yeah, the Yeah, I'm actually on the last slide. This is, that's it, actually. Okay. <laughs> okay, so I'll just answer a couple more questions. Yeah. I was wondering if you could get at this idea of by looking at your single vector score for the recovery. Uh, can you say a little bit more about that? So in other words, they, 
once you, you've given them this perturb, perturbation, and now after the end of the perturbation, you let them recover, right? You, you reinstate the original uh, intrinsic manifold. Intr the now, original matter. Through the hypothesis that one type of perturbation changes that intrinsic manifold more than the other, you would expect to change a difference in the recovery vectors. Oh, right. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah, so it turns out that um, if we look at this washout period, that for the outside manifold perturbations, that the recovery was almost instantaneous. Whereas for the within manifold perturbations, they tended to take time to recover. Oh, that's interesting. Right? So that, I mean, so that's consistent with uh, the learning results during the perturbation period, which is that the animal adapted or learned something right, during the perturbation for the within-manifold perturbations. And so it would take a little time for it to, to recover from that. Whereas for the outside-manifold perturbations, the animal didn't seem to learn anything. And so there, it doesn't take time for it to recover. Yep? So in your uh, original setup, you capped the number of uh, factors at 10, right? But then you still have some other factors that contribute to your uh, overall data. Have you looked at like maybe that rank relationship to how well the animal did in that out of manifold experiment? Uh, does that make sense to the masking? So maybe like the if the eleventh factor is then used in the experiment, it would do a little bit better than if maybe the eightieth factor was used uh, in the out of manifold experiment. Have you looked at that relationship at all? Uh, not sure. I'm entirely understanding. So what does it mean to use? The so you you have. Um, like you have a, a bunch of factors that you're, but you're only using ten of them, right? Right. Uh, but you can still. Um, we will we'll just chat afterwards. Yeah. I, I think I'm. So it isn't. Is what you're asking that uh, if the outside manifold tends to use factors that are closer to the ten? Yeah, exactly. That those tend to be easier to learn. Yeah, exactly. That's a really interesting question. We haven't looked at that, and I would hypothesize. I mean, I. I agree with you that that would be an interest. That 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 could be the case. Yeah. Did any of this work give any insight to how persons recover from a injury-induced perturbation to their intrinsic manifold, like a, a motor cortex pathology, mm -hmm. um, like a stroke, or could they give any insight to the limits of recovery or predictions of recovery? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question, which we haven't explored yet but we're very interested in exploring, which is that this paradigm has, huh? yeah, exactly, yeah. And this might provide um, a way to re help patients rehabilitate, right? Because if a patient you know, has a stroke or some other injury, they're no longer showing natural neural activity patterns. And if we can use this sort of uh, real-time uh, neurofeedback mechanism, to essentially show the subject on the screen its own neural activity and you know, try to get, move its neural activity into these natural regions, um, maybe we can help you know, them recover you know, more quickly. I don't know. Or even characterize, like, I mean, you'll never have that baseline in a human population of what was your intrinsic animal before you had that stroke yesterday, but you know, basing it based off, you know, could you ever how, like, is, is the stroke perturbing you out of that or within, within that? Mm. I mean, I guess it'd be really hard to never do those types of recordings, but is there anything you can do on the prediction side, it's not just on the rehab side? Yeah, yeah. I wonder whether... Patterns of muscle activity or... Yeah, I wonder what, whether something we could do is to look at healthy patients right. or healthy right. animals, and then there might be principles about the neural activity. For example, maybe um, something about the time course of the neural activity. Right? Or maybe something about sort of the dimensionality of the neural activity if we're looking at 100 neurons. Something like that, which then holds true across healthy subjects. And then we look at a patient, and then maybe um, their neural activity uh, disagrees with that, with the healthy population in some way. Maybe. Yeah. That would be interesting to look at.
Yeah. Do you think that's a good model of stroke? Well. Yeah. 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 We could try that. Yeah. So maybe a couple more questions. Yeah. One. Just one. Yeah. Absolutely. So I heard stimulation. So what, I, I didn't get the precise idea of this. Yeah, so, um, so you should be able to drive the 90 points to another equilibrium, uh, manifold equilibrium, um, by, you know, just say, uh, two out-of-network um, neurons, you end up uh, you know, driving some oscillatory signals such that they end up changing their activity to That would be really interesting. Yeah, that would be, that would be fun. You want to do that experiment? Last <laughs> 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 yeah. Okay. Um, so, piggybacking a little bit on what, what Ilya was asking about and, and thinking about, so, so when you, you have your 90 channels of recording and you, you reduce that computationally to 10 dimensions for your manifold, the animal, it seems like to me, is performing the next dimensionality reduction down to the two dimensions. You sort of constrain them; they can only move in, you know, in two dimensions. And I'm sure that helps. Um, do you think there are limitations on I don't know, the the magnitude of dimensionality reduction that they can perform, sort of ad hoc? Like, if you only reduced it to 40 dimensions, and then they had to reduce it from 40 to two, would that affect their ability to learn or behave? Yeah. So, in in the context of this experiment, it would make it more difficult for us to see the difference between these two distributions. Right, because then if we had overestimated the size of the intrinsic manifold by that much, then what we think are within manifold perturbations would actually be outside manifold perturbations. Um, but there might be a broader question here about um, uh, the space in which the animal needs to explore in order to be able to find the right solution. And it turns out that um, the naive uh, sort of version of this experiment uh, has a different size exploration space yeah, for the animal. So for, for if you think about the number of possible ways we can scramble right, the factors, 10 factors, right. that's fewer than the number of ways we can scramble 90 neurons. And so we worried about that as maybe that, you know, the size of the search space is larger right. for the outside manifold perturbation and that would, you know, make it harder for the animal to learn. And so then uh, for the second animal, so we had two animals, for the second animal, we did the experiment slightly differently to be able to control for that so that we restricted the size of the possible outside manifold perturbations to also be 10-dimensional, and we saw the same effect. Let's thank Byron one more time. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.